We find our text this afternoon from God's Word as we confess it and as it has been summarized by the church in Lord's Day 22, Lord's Day 22. And we confess in this Lord's Day, what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord's Day 22, we're dealing with the, the last two articles that you find in the Apostles' Creed. And in these, two last, or in these last two articles of the Apostles' Creed, we confess our faith in the promises, of, the promises of God with regard to the resurrection of our body and the life everlasting. And then Catechism asks this question, how do these promises of God, how do they comfort you? That is, how do these promises give you daily encouragement in order that you might face the challenges in your life? After all, we are faced in this life with many challenges, and we have to deal with so many disappointments and hardships and sorrows. Perhaps when you're younger, you're growing up, things don't always go the way that you hope they will go. There'll be disappointments, there'll be hardships. And the result is that even today, many times, young people lose hope for the future and, and they may feel despair and they may feel depressed or feel depression in, in their lives. Because you're not certain, you're not sure what, where things are going or because you had disappointments and you don't know how to deal with those disappointments in your life. And so also young people, you face social pressures, you have that need to belong or to be accepted. And sometimes you may not always feel that you are needed or that you are accepted by others. You also, as you're growing up, you, you need to figure out your future. And sometimes the hopes that you have don't always work out as, as you wish. And you may even experience failure in your life. And so, disappointment. But you know that those challenges don't stop when you get past those teenage years or those years of youth and you become older. Those challenges continue to remain with you, although they might be somewhat different, and especially as you enter into old age. If you become more elderly, then you also experience other kinds of disappointments of life when you're faced with a deterioration of your health. And you have to face the fact that you don't have the ability anymore to do the things that you used to be able to do before and that were so important to you. And not only do you then need to face the frustrations that come with all of that, but you also become more acutely aware as the years go on 
Now you are drawn nearer and nearer to death's door. Well, believers do not need to run away from those challenges of life. And we do not need to live a life either of denial, in which we just kind of put those problems aside or pretend, you know, just pretend everything is great and pretend that those issues aren't really there in my life. Well, you know, life isn't always great. Because we confess that that we live in a world of sin, in a world of misery. But yet, in the midst of this earthly life, the Lord God comes and He gives us great comfort. And the reality is, whether we're younger, whether we're older, whether we're in our old age, we all face death. But the sure promise of God is this, that one day, He says, you'll experience the resurrection of your body and the life everlasting. And so our greatest comfort is that through Jesus Christ, I may be fully assured of a glorious future. I may not feel that today, but I know that that is awaiting me because that is what the Lord has promised me. The day of the Lord's return is coming, and then He will take me together with all of His people into everlasting glory. And so this afternoon, we will confess God's Word under this theme. We confess in Jesus Christ the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting to our great comfort. So our theme this afternoon, we confess in Jesus Christ the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting to our great comfort. We'll look at three things. First of all, we'll see what is meant by comfort. Then secondly, what comfort I have in the promise of the resurrection of the body, and thirdly, what comfort I have in the promise of the life everlasting. Catechism begins already in the very beginning in Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1, with the question, what is my only comfort in life and death? And as catechism students, no doubt your minister will have also told you that that also shows us that this is the theme for the Heidelberg Catechism. Comfort is the theme for the whole catechism. For the gospel message is a message, is a message of comfort for a world in which there is only sin and misery and really, therefore, hopelessness. Well, the, the word comfort itself is, is used in the catechism just seven times. I know seven times, two times it is used in the very first uh, Lord's Day, in Lord's Day 1, and it is used again twice here in Lord's Day 22. And in between Lord's Day 1 and 22, it is used in Lord's Day 16, Lord's Day 19, and Lord's Day 20, once each. So you notice that beside Lord's Day 1, comfort is only used in those Lord's Days, that deal with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as that is confessed within the Apostles' Creed. Now, we don't normally exegete the catechism like we, do, like we would do the Scriptures and look for different kinds of patterns. But yet, it is worth noting that the writers of the catechism connected comfort here directly with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by doing so, what they're really doing is they're reflecting a biblical truth that you can only find comfort in connection with the life and with the work of the Lord Jesus. 
And that apart from the Lord Jesus, there is absolutely no comfort here in this world. And so when we turn to Lord's Day 22, we come then, we're dealing here with the last two articles of the Apostles' Creed. The articles that deal with the resurrection of the body and with the life everlasting. And this and in these last two articles, the, the Catechism now speaks about comfort twice. And so we confess that it gives us great comfort to know that our bodies will be resurrected from the dead and that we will have the life everlasting. And so we need to, first of all, ask ourselves, so, so what is the comfort that the Catechism is really talking about here? Well, some time ago, well, probably it was, it was about a year, a little more than a year ago, that the Roots Committee uh, for the Young People produced a short video. So perhaps some of you have seen that video, in which uh, they went with a video camera to some of the people on, on the city street, and they asked people, what is your only comfort in life and death? And if you have watched it, you may remember that almost all the people that were interviewed, they, they all said things like, my family, my friends, the, thing, the, play, the fact that I have a place where I can live. And you notice in those answers, people tended to focus on the earthly things, the things that would make their life, you can say, more comfortable. Well, Lord's Day 1 helps us to understand what real and true comfort is. Because the comfort that we are looking for is, is not just to be able to be more comfortable in this world and to be able to enjoy the material things of this life. And so in response to the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Notice that the Catechism says in Lord's Day 1 that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on, and it says this, that He, the Lord Jesus Christ, He has fully paid for all of my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from all the power of the devil. Notice, comfort that God gives us are not the comforts of this world, of this life. It's not God's goal that He might make us comfortable here, in this, here on this earth. But the true comfort that God offers is the redemption. It is the salvation of our life through the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. My comfort is not my earth, that, my earthly life, that He will make my earthly life better somehow. That He will take away all those disappointments and all those struggles. My comfort is that Jesus Christ has saved me from all my sins. And He has set me free from the destructive power of the devil. My comfort is that my life has now been set free from the sin and the misery of this life, and that my life now belongs to my Savior, Jesus Christ, because He has bought me with His blood. And therefore, when we now then also speak about the comfort of the resurrection and the comfort of the life everlasting, that comfort, beloved, is, is not that we will be able to enjoy an, an uninterrupted life forever here on this earth, but it means that I may live with the Lord my God forever and ever and ever. The resurrection will be a resurrection to a new life, a new life in the glorious kingdom of God, 
And therefore, I look forward also to the life everlasting in the presence of my God and of my Savior. And so you see that these two articles about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting can never be separated from the work of God in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, my body will now be raised up from the dead and I will live forever with my Lord and with my Savior. That is my greatest comfort. And so it's in that light that we need to look at the comfort that we have in, the, in God's promise of the resurrection of the body. You know that promise of the resurrection of the body is uh, something that many people, in fact most people, find it impossible to believe and they say it's nonsense. Someone also noted that, you know, it's easier to believe in God's creating activity and it's easier to believe that God created the world and the universe than it is to believe in the resurrection of the body one day. And the reason for that is that God's creation, you can say, is in very many ways much more real to us. Because every day you wake up and you see the things that God has created. You see it with your own eyes. You can touch it with your hands. You can taste it with your mouth. You can smell it with your nose. And therefore you experience God's creation. And therefore the question then is, is not whether creation is real, but the question then that we have is, so how did it get here? But the resurrection of the body is not something that we can experience in any kind of form. You never see dead people coming back to life again. Because everyone that dies is buried in the the ground, and, and that person never comes back out of the ground. And so the idea of the resurrection of the body is only something that can be believed through faith. No, I'm not suggesting that believing in God as the Creator is not an act of faith. But of course, we know that no one can believe also that God is the Creator without faith. But the point is uh, that while there are many who might acknowledge that the world is God's creation, many might even acknowledge, perhaps only in the general way, that there must have been some power out there who has created the world. Yet they will reject any notion that there will be a resurrection of the body in the last day. You also find that reflected in many of the old religions and even the Greek philosophies of old. Many religions and many philosophies teach that, you know, when a person dies, what happens is the body dies, but the soul is now freed from the body. And so the soul has immortality, meaning that the soul is something that lives on forever. There are some religions that also teach that, that the soul will be reincarnated in this world and be reincarnated in some different form. And so there, there seems to be you know, a fairly widespread acceptance for the immortality of the soul, but there is no such widespread belief in the resurrection of the body one day. Well, you know, in the days of the Lord Jesus, there was a division among the Jews between two different, largely two different sects. One were, one were those who followed the Pharisees and the other ones were those who followed the Sadducees. And we're told in Matthew, in the scripture reading that we, we read together, that the Sadducees did not believe in, in the resurrection of the body. In fact, the Sadducees also didn't believe in the existence of angels 
And, and therefore, the Sadducees even rejected the whole idea of a spirit world. And therefore, they, of course, automatically also rejected that there could be such a thing as the resurrection of the body. And so for them, when, when you died, you, you simply, that was simply the end of your existence. And so some of the Sadducees, uh, they were told in Matthew 22 that they now came to the Lord Jesus and they had a question. And what, there was, of course, a purpose behind that question, and that purpose was that they, they wanted to, and they thought that they could show everybody how ridiculous uh, the idea about the resurrection of the body really was. And so Jesus teaching them about the resurrection, uh, that was nonsense. So they came to the Lord Jesus and they told him a story about a woman who had married and her husband died before they were able to have any children. And of course, God had already given a command in the Old Testament that if a man should die without leaving any children, that his brother then was to, to marry his wife and to raise up children for him so that his name would continue in the generations. And so the Sadducees said, you know, this woman, she remarried her husband's brother, uh, but he also died before they could have any children. And then he married his next brother. And this happened seven times. And finally the woman died. And when she died, she then had, she had seven husbands in her lifetime. And so they said to the Lord to Jesus, Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them have married her. And so they thought with that question they were being pretty clever. And they thought that somehow they had trapped the Lord Jesus. Because if there is a resurrection from the dead, isn't that going to lead to all kinds of strange and ridiculous situations? They're going to, these men are going to fight over this woman. And they're going to, each one of them is going to claim her to be their wife. And therefore, how can anybody teach such a thing, such as the resurrection of the body? And then you notice how the Lord Jesus replied in Matthew 22, verse 29. He says, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. And then he explains that at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor will they be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. In the same story in Luke chapter 20, verse 36, Luke adds that Jesus says they can no longer die before they are like the angels. And so in other words, the Sadducees here were making the mystic of thinking that, that things in the resurrection are going to be exactly the same as it was before the resurrection here on this earth. But after the resurrection, Jesus says, the body will indeed become imperishable so that no one will ever die. Just like the angels today never die, but live forever. That's the point about that comparison to the angels. As the angels don't die, so also those who are raised up in the new body, that new body will never die. And therefore, there will not be any need either for, for marriage and for children like there is here on this earth because, of course, today we know we all perish and it is only uh, through that new birth that, or through, through the birth of children that generations can continue on. Well, that was also, remember, the reason for the command that the brothers should marry the wife of their brother so that he would have children who would carry on his name here on this earth. But in the resurrection, Jesus says, there is no longer, that will no longer be necessary. And therefore, there will not be any marriage. 
And so the first mistake for the Sadducees is that they were thinking that things will be the same in the resurrection as it is today here on this earth. That's the first mistake. The second mistake is that they do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Well, you know that Sadducees, they gave the greatest authority in the Old Testament only to really the first five books, the five books of Moses. The rest of the Old Testament, they, they really didn't really find very important and they did not really consider it to be sacred scripture or sacred writing. And so when the Lord Jesus now rebukes them, see what he does. He, he goes to this part of that first five books of Moses and rebukes them by quoting from that part of the Bible that they consider to be the highest authority. And so in verse 31, he asks them this, or he says this, have you not read what God said to you? That I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so you see, Jesus there quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, the second book of Moses. And he quotes the very words that God spoke to Moses when he came to Moses there at the burning bush. Now, as you read these words, at first, you know, we might wonder from our perspective, uh, how do these words, now, how do they prove the resurrection of the dead? Because they don't mention the resurrection of the body at all. These words, they reveal the power of God. Jesus says, for God, for he is not a God of the dead, but he's a God of the living. And so the situation was that, Jesus says, that God appeared to Moses hundreds of years after the patriarchs had already died, before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. And yet God says to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus makes this point. He says, God cannot be a God of, of dead people. And if God cannot be a God of dead people, that means that these men then are still living. It means that these men are still alive with God. And that's also the truth that is reflected when we confess in the first part of question and answer 57, that my soul immediately after this life will be taken up to Christ, my head. Jesus says that, that since God is not the God of the dead, it means that those who die in the Lord are now with the living God. And therefore, you also have in the parable about the rich man and, and Lazarus. Jesus can say that when Lazarus died, he was lying there in the bosom of Abraham there in heaven. And of course, in the parables, you can't necessarily take all those different points and connect them directly, but they do speak of truths. And the truth here is this, that, that Abraham is there in heaven with the Lord God, and Lazarus, Jesus, has now gone up to heaven and is there now lying in the bosom of Abraham in heaven. And since the Lord God is the God of the living, that means that even today, those who, who died in Christ Jesus, Jesus says, you are now alive with God. That's why the Lord Jesus can also say to the thief who was hung with him there on the cross, he can say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now we might argue that all this really proves is the immortality of the soul. And that Jesus, is, therefore, does not really prove the resurrection of the body. 
But yet notice the reaction of the crowds to Jesus' words in Matthew 22, verse 33. Is that when they heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And in verse 34, that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. In other words, he had given the answer and they had no answer back. They had no word back for the Lord Jesus about the question about the resurrection of the body. And therefore, the Jews and, and even the Sadducees, this argument was one that gave decisive proof for the resurrection so that even the Sadducees could not argue back against the Lord Jesus. Now, remember we said earlier that, that in many religions and many philosophies, there is this belief in the immortality of the soul. And so that people believe that the soul uh, will live forever completely separate, separated from the human body. But you should also keep in mind here, beloved, that, that such thinking about life was completely foreign uh, to the ways that the Jews thought. So Greek thought was completely in contrast to Jewish thought on this point. Because when the Jews thought about life, they did not separate the soul from the body. Because when God created life in the beginning, then God created mankind, both body and soul. Remember when God first created man, he first of all, he created the body, and then what does God do? God came, and he breathed into the nostrils of man, and the man became a living being. And the word for living being at times is also translated as soul. And so in, in the Hebrew, the soul refers not just to the inner part of mankind, but it refers to the whole person, that which we would refer to as body and soul. And therefore, when God enters into a covenant with His people, and when He promises that He will be their God, then God's promise is not just that He will give life to the soul. The Jews understood God's promise is not just to be for their soul, but that he gives life to the whole person, to their body and soul. And therefore, Jesus says, you just don't know the Scriptures to the Sadducees, nor do you know the power of God. For God is the God of the living, and therefore God gives life to the whole person. And therefore, you, you see that the Jews, the Pharisees, already believed in the resurrection of the dead. That comes out also later on in Acts when, when Paul um, argues for the resurrection of the body, and he knows the Pharisees will take his side over against the Sadducees. But do you notice that, that Jesus makes the connection here now between the re Jesus here makes the connection between God and the resurrection. It means that, beloved, that, that you can never think about the resurrection as something completely separate from the Lord God in heaven. For how does the Lord Jesus prove the resurrection? By showing that there is a living relationship between God and the patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of God's covenant with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, God gives them life. And what kind of life does He give them? He gives them life, both body and soul. Remember that in the last day, that God will then raise up everyone here in the whole earth. That means, beloved, that all of mankind, every single person who has ever walked here on this earth, will rise up from the grave. But you also know that that resurrection will not be a comfort. 
to those who have rejected the covenant with God. But those who rejected the covenant with God, those who rejected the living God and refused to believe and to live for Him, they will be raised up to everlasting condemnation. But what a comfort for the believer, for on that day they will experience not only that they will be raised up bodily from the grave and be reunited with their soul, but they will also be able to live with the Lord their God in His kingdom forever. Our greatest comfort then is not only that we're going to have a, a, a new body one day, but our greatest comfort is that we will be raised up with our bodies to an eternal life with the Lord our God. And so in question and answer 58 deals with the life everlasting. Then you would also expect in that situation that the catechism would talk about our life hereafter this life. But you notice it doesn't do that. Instead it talks about our life today. And it says, since now, since now, today already, here in this life, today I feel in my heart the beginning of eternal, law, of eternal joy. I shall, after this life, possess perfect blessedness. That means that we already experience eternal joy today. And therefore, we already have the assurance that we will enjoy eternal life after this life. Now, when we talk about eternal life, I think too often we think in this way. We think about life, a life that is never going to end. And we think about life that way, eternal life in that way, because really, in, also today in our culture, isn't that the Holy Grail? The Holy Grail is that everybody is striving for is that they, their bodies might live forever. People would love nothing more than for scientists to find some potion, some medicine, some, some means by which it would allow our bodies to live forevermore. But beloved, in the Scriptures, everlasting life is much more than just a life that never ends here on this earth. Because everlasting life must always be understood in connection to the Lord God in heaven. In Luke 15, the Lord Jesus taught the parable concerning the lost son, sometimes also referred to as the prodigal son. You know the story. One day, the youngest son of the two sons, the youngest one comes to his father, and he says, Father, give me my inheritance so uh, that I might go and make my own way in the world. He wanted to break connections with his father, with his father's home, and he wanted to go out and strike out on his own life. His, and he wanted to do his own things. And so basically what he did is he, re he rejected his, his father, and he decided that he wanted to live independent from his father and live like the people of the world were living. And as he went out, he very quickly he squandered all his money in loose living. And finally, there came a day when he was desperate because all his money was gone, uh, and he couldn't buy his food anymore, and, and so he became desperate for food. And as he is feeding the swine, and he's working among the swine, and even there he can't even eat the swine's food. He thinks back to the days when he was back home. And he remembers that in his father's house, no one, none of the servants ever went hungry. And so he decides, I will go back home. And returns home. 
and he understands what he's done to his father. And so his intention in returning home is, I will just go back home as a servant, and I'll ask my father to, to take me back just as a servant, because he knows he's forfeited his place as a son in the house. And as he comes home, his father sees him coming in the distance. And what does the father do? The father runs out to greet him, welcomes him with, with open arms as his very own son. And the father says in Luke 15, verse 24, he says, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Notice he says this son of mine was dead. What does he mean that he was dead? Wasn't he still alive? He's still breathing, he's still walking, he was still talking, he was still eating. You're just like anybody else walking on the earth. But what the Father means is, my son was dead to me. When he left my home, what did he do? He broke the relationship uh, that he had with me. And at that point, when, when he left me, when he turned his back on me, he went his own way. At that point, I lost my son. He was gone. He was as good as dead. But now he has come back. He's come back to me, and therefore he's alive. And so you see, the relationship that was broken is a relationship that has been restored, and it brings the Father the greatest joy in his life. And so the point that the Lord Jesus makes is, is that when we become disobedient to God the Father, what do we do? We break the relationship that we have with God by our sin and by our rebellion. The result is that we are now dead to the Lord our God because that relationship is gone. It means that we are eternally lost. But the Lord Jesus also makes clear, He says, when, when you turn back uh, to the Father in faith, and when you look to Him as the one who saves you and who will protect you, then the result is that your life is again restored. And in that renewed relationship with God, in that relationship you receive everything that you need for your life. It means that we now find our greatest joy when our life again rests securely in the hands of our God, in the hands of my Father. And therefore, not only did the Father experience great joy when His Son came back, but beloved, the Son also experienced a great joy and delight when He's again received by His Father with those open arms. Because, you know, that was the last thing He expected but it gave him the greatest comfort to be able to begin experience that his relationship with the Father has been restored, even though he didn't deserve that at all. Jesus once said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 15, he said, The Son of Man must be lifted up, and that everyone who believes in him may have, what? May have eternal life. You see, here the Lord Jesus reveals the very heart of His mission for why He came to this earth. Jesus says, I came that I might be lifted up there on the cross so that I might pay for the sins of all of my people. 
And therefore, he says, everyone who looks up to me as the Savior will receive eternal life. What Christ does for us, beloved, is to restore us again to that loving, to that living relationship with our Father there in heaven. And so that means this. It means that eternal life is different from our old existence here on this earth before we had come to the Lord God in faith. You see, our old way of life was a life of sin. It was a life of disobedience. It was a life of rebellion against the Lord our God. But this new life is a completely different life. In the past, we went our own way, and we wanted to be completely independent from God, like this youngest son in the parable wanted to be independent from his father. And in the new life, we have a whole different attitude. We have one in which we look to the Lord God. We say, God, I am nothing, but I look to you and you alone that you might save me and that you might protect me from all dangers, that you might also uphold me in the, in the face of the disappointments and the struggles of this life. And therefore, beloved, that's why we confess that this eternal life does not begin after this life but that we already experience that eternal life the moment that we enter into that living relationship and that fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the moment that you have that fellowship with God is the moment that, you also, that your whole life changes for you. Because then you will turn away from that life of sin and misery and thinking that you can be independent and you can make life work on your own terms. You turn away from that life which is nothing but a life of despair and desperation. And you now begin to look in faith to the Lord God because you know that in Him you again have hope and you have again eternal joy. And if you already experience the joy of this eternal life today, well, then imagine what joy then also awaits you, beloved, after this life. You already experience the peace and the comfort knowing that your life is secure in the hands of God because Jesus Christ has bought you with His blood. But then you can't even begin to imagine what life will be like hereafter. Then the most we can say also with the words of Scripture and with the words of the Apostle Paul, that it would be a life of blessed, of perfect blessedness which no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. And the Lord Jesus made very clear in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, He says, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. And he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die, Do you believe this, Jesus asks? This eternal life will be a life with the Lord that will last for eternity. Everyone, beloved, who has life in me, Jesus says, will never, never die. Why? Because we have that everlasting relationship and fellowship with our Father. That is your greatest comfort. That in Jesus Christ, beloved, you have eternal life. 
We have it today, and you will have it for eternity. Do you believe this to your comfort? Amen.